Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. Our scripture came to us from the book of Psalms, which is actually a book of Hebrew songs. And the closing word, Selah, is actually a musical note for rest. It lets the singers know that here you're supposed to take a pause, take a breath, and let the people think about what they heard. And so this morning, we're going to continue our journey through the saints. Of course, we're not going to be able to cover all the saints, but we are going to talk today about our first female saint in the series, and that is a young woman by the name of Joan of Arc. And Joan was unfortunately destined to say, always a young woman. And what we discover is that in our psalm, God is recounting for us, and the people are joyfully singing the praises of God, who brought triumph to God's people. Because the Israelites were never really great warriors. They're not a warfaring people. They're not very good at it. And that's why throughout the scriptures, anytime there's an amazing warrior, the Bible goes on and on about it because they really weren't that good at it. They wouldn't be talking about how mighty a warrior King David was if everybody else around him was a mighty warrior. So when you have someone who is actually skilled and successful at being a warrior or a military leader, that's why the Bible makes such a big deal out of it. Because these people were not very good. In fact, usually war went one of two ways if it was ever going to be successful. Either God sent one or two angels who said, just stand back, we've got this. Or God had to raise up somebody like King David to lead the people. But it's more difficult to use a human than it is an angel. Because usually the reaction to an angel was everybody was like, oh, that's weird anyway. And so they would let the angel do the angel's work. But when you have a human being, you have to convince people. You have to convince them to follow you, that you're competent, that you can do this, that they can have confidence in your abilities. And then you have to give them the hope that they can win. They need that. Nobody's going to win a battle that go, there's no way we're winning this. This is just, we're all going to the slaughter. You ain't going to win that battle. You've got to give them some aspiration that they feel like they can attain success. And that's one of the greatest gifts that those like King David were able to do for their armies and their soldiers was that they were able to inspire them to success. That's not easy to do. And very few people over the course of humankind have had the ability to do that over and over again. Enter in a young girl in rural France. Her name is Joan. Joan was born in 1412, and she would be dead by 1431. Joan was a typical young girl and coming into her teenage years. She was growing up with her family, and her father had a farm. The farm was a meager success. He was able to provide for not only his family, his wife, and his children, but he was also able to raise a little bit of extra to sell, to bring in some additional income. He also was a very low-level bureaucrat there in his town, helping to collect taxes and do other things like that. So he had some access to information about what was happening outside of the immediate area where they lived, and he was able to share that with his family. 
And it was not a wonderful time in France where Joan was. They had been in the midst of the Hundred Year War with England. France and England have been in this epic battle of wills that unfortunately constantly allows itself to be poured out in bloodshed. And because of that, the people have only known war. That's all they've known. They're young men going off to battle and many of them not coming back home. In addition to that, France has still not fully recovered from the Black Plague. They're dealing with their own pandemic and the aftermath of it. And so there's this constant fear of violence and warfare and illness and disease. And in the midst of all of this comes this young woman. And Joan is out one day in her father's garden. And it's very specific that it was in his garden. In addition to having an actual farm where he grew things to eat, he had a garden. And there in the garden, they would go for contemplation. There they would go to pray. And this is where Joan goes. She goes into her father's garden. And gardens are a place of incredible opportunity in the scriptures. Not just the Garden of Eden, and there's some things that happen there that we try not to replicate in our gardens, but also the Garden of Gethsemane. Most of us tend to think about that. We depict it here in one of our stained glass windows in the sanctuary of Jesus going there to pray on the eve of his betrayal. That there in the garden, you seem to be able to find the solitude and the stillness necessary to truly converse with God. And so Joan had gone there, and while she was in her father's garden, the archangel Michael appears to her. And how fortuitous it is that it's Michael. Oftentimes in the Bible, we don't get a name with the angels. The angels are loath to tell anybody their name. And at one point in the Bible, they tell us, I don't want to tell you my name because then you will mistakenly worship me. And I am here in the name of the only name that counts, and that is God. But we do occasionally get some names. And it's not the archangel Gabriel who shows up to greet Joan. That would be most appropriate. Most of us would tend to think of Gabriel because there's another epic place where the archangel Gabriel appears to a young woman probably of the exact same age as Joan. And that is when Gabriel appears to Mary to let her know that she has been chosen to bear the Christ child in the world. And Gabriel is often depicted with a trumpet. He's often shown with a large trumpet, which is fairly useless in battle. And so she gets Michael. Michael is a ferocious angel. He's almost always depicted standing on a demon or a devil with the final blow coming down. He is always pictured triumphant. He is always pictured very strong and capable. This is why he is often the patron saint of police officers and the military, because he inspires them to success. And he appears to Joan at 13. Now, Joan was able to convey what happened to her in the court transcripts of her trial. And the Catholic Church kept incredible records and documentation. So we actually know more about Joan than we do a lot of saints because of her trial and the fact that we were able to get not only her biography, her autobiography, but other people were interviewed and those conversations were recorded. And so what we end up knowing is that Joan testifies that as soon as the angel left her in that encounter, that vision, she was so overwhelmed that all she could do was cry. And that's fairly standard. When you have a vision or an encounter with God, it is so overwhelming. It is so fearful and yet awesome that your body can only process it through the catharsis of tears. And that's what Joan does. But, da but not David, but Michael will keep reappearing 
to Joan. And she will have more of these encounters and these visions, and it becomes very clear that God is asking Joan to do something. He wants her to go and ensure that Charles will take the throne and win back France for her people. Now, that's incredibly overwhelming and a lot of European history. So what's happening in France, in addition to the Hundred Years' War and the plague, is that the people are trying to figure out who is going to be in charge of their country. It's really hard to have a country battling another country when you don't know who's in charge. And Charles was one of those that could have been the regent. And the, the people were kind of divided over two candidates. One was more highly favored by England, and then there was Charles. And Charles was in his 20s, and he was not feeling super confident. And so God has said to Joan, I want you to go to Charles and let him know that I am going to help him take back France for the good of his people through you. Now imagine if God appeared to our middle school fellowship group and told them that they were going to be in peace and harmony throughout not just the United States, but the whole world, go. Most of us would be like, okay, right. This is the same group that's going to do some human curling and eat nachos soon, right? But it is. This is what happens. And so Joan goes to a military leader that is nearby her town, and she tells him about the visions, and she tells him what's going on, and she says, I need some of your soldiers to go with me to see Charles. And he says, absolutely not. You're crazy. Can you imagine if, if like a 14, 15-year-old, 16-year-old walked up to one of our great military leaders, Patton, uh, even George Washington, MacArthur, Norman Schwarzkopf, and was like, I know how we are going to win this war. And they'd be like, yes, let's get her to the Pentagon. Quick, quick, quick. Right? No, that would never happen. And that's pretty much what happened the first time Joan went to that military leader. He didn't believe her, and he was like, yes, yes, honey, go home. But Joan had been raised as a Catholic, as a Christian. And she couldn't read, and she couldn't write. And she did, though, attend Mass with her family every week. She was taught prayers, she was taught hymns and songs, and she had faith. And she believed that this is what God wanted of her. And so most of us, if we had come up to that pinnacle moment where we're trying to convince somebody of some power and authority that we were here because this is what God wanted and they shot us down, most of us would have been like, well, I tried, Jesus, and head home. Not Joan. Perhaps that's why God chose a teenager. Because teenagers don't take no for an answer. They just keep at it. And so what ends up happening is she goes back and she kind of unpacks everything that's happened and she doubles back down and she says, God, if this is really what you want, I need to make sure that I'm doing your will and not my own. And so she goes back again a few months later. In that time, she's been having conversations with some of the soldiers that are nearby. And some of them are convinced. Convinced of what? They're convinced that God Almighty has sent a vision in the form of St. Michael the Archangel to this teenage young woman telling her to help them retake France. 
They have bought into the hope that that is true. And so she goes back to the military leader, and this time, through her perseverance and her insistence and persistence, she convinces him to send two of his best soldiers with her to where Charles is holding court. And as they win that little triumphant victory there, they take some time to turn to Joan and say, Joan, we are getting ready to take you on horseback across some treacherous territory, some hostile countryside. And as we do that, you probably are not going to want to wear a dress for two reasons. It's not good for horseback, and they're not riding a side saddle on a battlefield. And it's probably better if people don't recognize that you are a young woman with us. And so they give her some armament. They give her pants. They give her some things that would make her look more like a young squire than actually a young woman. And so it is that she rides with them, and they go to where Charles is. Now, Charles is not feeling super confident. He's not where he was supposed to be. He's in his 20s. He's not, you know, overseeing France. He's fighting a political battle, and he's watching his people lose a war to England, and he's struggling. He's feeling pretty hopeless. He's so hopeless that in the midst of a large gathering in his court, he has hidden himself among the people. He's not even sitting up on a throne and commanding attention. He is hiding. And when Joan goes into the room, she walks right over to him and is able to find him. Now, this is not our day and time where everybody knew what Charles looked like. It's not like they were being bombarded with images and newspapers and TV or they could Google him. Somehow, she knew who Charles was and she walked directly to him. And when she got to him, she told him who she was and why she was there. And Charles was overwhelmed. How could this be? First of all, if you were Charles, is this who you would pick to save your throne? An illiterate girl from rural France who shows up wearing men's clothes? Probably not. But she's so passionate and convincing that Charles withdraws to have a, a smaller audience with her. And he's so overwhelmed by her insistence that this is the will of God, that God has sent her to Charles, that he decides to have her tested a little bit. The first thing he does is have some of the local theologians make sure that she's not a heretic, which she passes. Despite the fact that she hasn't had access to the Bible, the Gutenberg Bible has not even been published yet in print, she doesn't have access to it, she can't read it even if she did, she manages to articulate the exact tenets of her faith so that she is signed off as absolutely in line with the theology and the doctrine of the church. And then, just to play it safe, Charles has his mother-in-law examine her to make sure that she's also still a maiden. She passes that test too. So above all, she's now been found to be pure and righteous. And so now he has the tough decision of deciding to let her go and meddle in with his army's efforts, with his military, to see if this can work. But probably what really convinced Charles is not even her articulation, her powerful presence, but the fact that she already showed up with people who were ready to follow her. People who had already seen and heard and been convinced, and their hope was contagious. Now, people who don't like change, who people in power and position and who have privilege that don't like change, they hate hope. 
They hate hope. It spreads like a virus. All of a sudden, everybody's all hopeful. And everybody's feeling like, we can do this. We can change things. And they forget these earthly powers that we serve a God who in Revelation, the same one that talks about Archangel Michael, says to the world, I am a God who is making all things new. You want a God of stability that never changes? You're in trouble. Because our God is all about making change for the better. Making change for the better. Transformational change that makes us better, that makes the world better. That's what our God is all about. And he decided to use Joan in France to do this. And it worked. Even though we actually have no independent um, stability or any kind of way of verifying that Joan actually ever fought in battles, we don't believe that she actually picked up weaponry and fought. But what we do know is that just as many of the generals and the leaders would be kind of off the battlefield but watching and directing, Joan was there with them. She had her own banner commissioned so that they could see that Joan was there. So that some of the soldiers who had never actually talked with her or met her face to face, they could look back, see their leaders, and see that Joan was there. That Joan had stayed to be a part of their battle, willing them on with her presence saying, I believe in what you are doing. I believe in you. And that changed the tide of the war. They started winning. They started changing how they fought because they believed that somebody believed in them. That someone was actually there to be a physical, tangible reminder of hope. And it worked. It worked too well. Because Charles did retake the throne. But there were also many powerful people within France and within the church who were actually favoring England. England was under Henry V at the time, who was still Catholic. They will remain Catholic until Henry VIII. And so you have two Catholic monarchs, two Catholic nations at war with each other. And what ends up happening is that there is a bishop in this area who is actually more inclined to the British monarch. And so he, using his power and authority and his means, has a trap laid and arrests Joan. And when he does, they take her back and they decide to call in an inquisitor. Many of you have studied the Inquisition. The inquisitor's job is to figure out what's wrong with you, how you are a heretic, and what you have done that warrants your repentance and the church's forgiveness. It's not so much an investigator as it is somebody who's there to figure out what they're going to do with you. And so the inquisitor and the bishop take command of Joan. She is 19. And what ends up happening is that Joan is charged with heresy, even though previously she was found to be completely in line. She is charged with heresy, and the charges are given to her in Latin. She is illiterate. She can't even read French. She certainly cannot read Latin. And despite this, Joan is able to offer some of the most insightful and profound words at her trial. They ask her if she believes that she is worthy of what she claims God has done for her. And Joan replies, if I am not in God's grace, then I pray that God will move me there. And if I am in God's good grace, then I pray that God will keep me there. She is incredibly faithful. 
even in the presence of those who are part of the hierarchy and the establishment of her very own church, she never wavers. She never recants. Now, she was absolutely happy to relinquish the garb that they found to be inappropriate. In fact, most of the testimony, and the Catholic Church was great about taking all the testimony down in writing, in Latin, most of the testimony actually confirms the fact that Joan didn't just hang around in men's clothing and pants. That when she wasn't actively part of the military campaign and she was just at rest or around town, she put back on her female clothes. And so when they told her, they arrested her right after a battle, that she would have to remove those, those articles of clothing, she freely did and wore a dress to her, to her trial. And they found her guilty. Of course they found her guilty. Because the hope was of this bishop and his conspirators that by getting rid of Joan, they could stop what is happening. That they could remove, steal the hope from the French people. And so on May 30th, they burned her at the stake. They took a 19-year-old young woman, tied her to a beam, and killed her. Because they thought that she was the only way that people could get hope. And what ended up happening was that almost immediately, the common people started to push back on this. Charles pushed back on this. Charles knew what she could do. And so what ended up happening was that in 1456, she died in 1431. In 1456, the sitting pope decides to examine her by trial, have a retrial. And they do. And he exonerates her. Not only does he find her not guilty, but then he declares that she was a martyr. Can you imagine being declared that you died for your faith by the very faith that you professed? She was a lifelong Catholic who was killed by the Catholic Church. But they realized that they had made a mistake, and so they declared her a martyr. By the 6th century, she had, 16th century, she had already become a symbol of the French Catholic League mostly a group of women who are doing good works for the people of France. By 1803, Napoleon Bonaparte will declare her a national symbol for France. And in 1909, she will be officially beatified by the Catholic Church. She will now be known as Blessed. By 1920, she will be canonized a saint. And every saint in Catholicism has a feast day. Joan's feast day is the anniversary of her death, May 30th. And on that day, people the world over, not just in France, but all over the world, remember Joan and what she was able to do, the hope that she was able to give people who felt helpless and hopeless. She gave them that incredible divine gift. And because of it, people celebrate her. They don't remember the bishop that had her killed. They're not celebrating Henry V. They're not even celebrating Charles. They are celebrating her. And in doing so, they remember all those nameless, faceless French people who for perhaps the first time in their lives felt that God cared, that God was going to do something for them. Now, what does that mean for us over here? We're not French. What does that mean for us? Well, it means for us that one... In Joan of Arc, we have proof that hope is important. 
God felt that hope was so important that God sent her, and God loves sending people that nobody would expect. Why do you think God sent a young boy about the same age that Joan was when she had her first divine encounter with Michael to go and slay the giant Goliath? Why do you think God chose a young woman probably the same age as Joan when she had that encounter to bear the Christ child in the world? God seems to have an affinity for young teenagers. And God says, I can do things with unexpected and ordinary vessels that you would never believe. And people didn't. That bishop didn't believe that Joan had experienced God in this vision. He didn't believe that Joan was called by divine order to do what she was doing. He didn't believe her. But thousands others did. Thousands of others heard her testimony, saw how she was living her life, and chose to receive the hope that she was trying to give them. And in the course of our lives as Christians, hopefully at least once, we will engage in a mission work. Mission work is entirely benevolent. We're not trying to make people into Christians. That's evangelism. We're talking about mission work. Mission work is literally what Jesus talks about in Matthew 25. Feed the hungry. Give the thirsty something to drink. Clothe the naked. Welcome the stranger. Go visit the sick and the imprisoned. These are the things that Jesus wants us to do because people need that kind of compassion and mercy. That's what mission work is. And at some point in the course of our lives, we're going to have the opportunity to meet people who are hopeless. And they are hopeless because they feel helpless. The world looks at their situation and says, you are no good. This is your lot and forever shall it be. And they have heard that sinful message it is a sin to rob God's people of their hope. And they have heard that and they have received it time and time again until they start to, God, help us believe that lie. And so they become fatalistic, not in the sense of predestinationalism and they believe that everything has already been determined and before they were born it was already decided by God if they were going to heaven and hell. That, not that kind of fatalism. They become fatalistic to believe that there is nothing they can do to change their circumstances. I am poor and I will always be poor. I am sick and I will always be sick. I am despised and I always will be. They believe those lies until one day they encounter a Christian like you. And then that moment, you give them some of your hope. That hope that you received when you realized that that cross really does cleanse you of your guilt and your sin. That hope you received when you really had the epiphany of recognizing that you are a beloved child of God, a being of sacred worth, and that God loves you no matter what. That hope is yours. And you can keep it or you can share it. And when you share it, maybe for the first time in their lives, someone will taste God's grace. And they will want more. That's why Christians go to church. That's why Christians gather together as the body of Christ. That's why Christians give their gifts, make their prayers. That's why Christians live out their faith because you have had that hope and you don't want it to run out. You want more. And so God sends ordinary people like me and you to do extraordinary things. 
There is nothing more extraordinary in this world than being a vessel of God's hope. Letting people know that I can forgive you and you can have the hope that you can be forgiven. That I can love you and you can have the hope that you can be loved. Those are the gifts that we give in the world. We model what we have received so that people can believe, can fathom, can grasp that they too can be like us, can know what it is like. And Joan did that for her people. She chose to love a people. She loved a people, many of whom didn't love her. She loved a people, some of whom had her killed. She loved a people because she believed that God loved them. She loved her people of France, not because she's French, but because God told her to go and do this and serve them and help them. That's what God told her to do. If God had sent her to Zimbabwe, she would have loved them. But she loved those to whom she had been sent. And for us, as modern Christians in America, sometimes it's hard for us to realize that we find ourselves in a place and perhaps God sent us there. And we're in a place and we're seeing people and we're like, these are not my people. But every single person is God's. And so every single person is our people. That's a theology that we will wrestle with our entire lives. Because that bishop didn't get it. He didn't realize that just because you don't like Joan and you don't like what Joan is doing doesn't mean that God doesn't love Joan and that God can't use what Joan is doing for the good of God's people. He was doing something different. And it was not God's will that was done in that bishop, but his own. And God thwarted that too. Because they still speak French in France. The English did not win. And every May 30th, they remember a young woman who gave them the hope that they can be France. That they could be that country. And they celebrate her. They have a feast. They have a mass and they give praise for her and say prayers that, of veneration. But the biggest thing is that they have a celebration and they break bread and they drink wine. And they remember that once when they felt that they had been cast aside and forgotten and forsaken, God came to them in a teenager who couldn't read the word. She couldn't write it, but she could live it. She could live what God was asking her to do. And you are going to encounter that in your life. You're going to encounter somebody who is as fatalistic as France was at that time. This is all I'm ever going to be. The world has beaten them down with messages of negativity and rejection. They feel that they are despised. And as Christians, we often wrestle with the entire depiction of the passion of Christ. Why would Jesus have to go through that kind of humiliation, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual abuse? Why? Because he knows you're going to encounter somebody who knows what Good Friday feels like. They're going to know what it is like to be rejected. And they are going to look at you Easter Sunday. They are going to look at you and they're going to wonder, will I ever come out of this tomb? Or is my life sealed here forever? And how you respond to them, 
the hope that you choose to share. That is the spirit of Joan of Arc. It is not about waging war. It is not about encouraging people to destroy and annihilate one another. It is about teaching people that hope can change the course of human history. Has it not changed ours? When someone chooses to have hope in you, it will change your world. Do you remember the first time somebody that wasn't your parent or your grandparent had hope in you? Do you remember the first time somebody looked at you and saw something of value in you and gave you the hope that you could be more than you ever thought you could be? I will never forget the first person that ever thought that I could be a clergy person. The Reverend Linda Patterson, associate pastor at Florist United Methodist Church, turned to me one day and said, I think you have a call to ministry. And I did what any one of you would do. You're crazy. I responded. You're crazy. I don't want to do what y'all are doing up here. I don't want to be that. And it's not just because I didn't want to be this. It was because I had no hope that I could be. She was the first female pastor I had ever met, ever seen, ever heard of. How can I be her? I'm 16. What do you see? And I don't know that she saw this. I don't know that anybody could have seen this. But she saw something. And if she hadn't had the hope that I could be, if she hadn't given me a little bit of that hope that maybe I could be, I wouldn't be. Anyone who was doing service for Jesus Christ needed to have the experience of the hope that they could do it. Otherwise, we tell each other lies about, well, we can't do that. There's no way we can do that. I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm not St. Benedict. I'm not St. Francis. I'm not those people. I'm not Linda Patterson. No, you're not. You are exactly who God knows someone needs. You are the child of God, the disciple of Jesus Christ, you are the earthly vessel of divine power and grace that God knows that someone needs you to be. And if you are willing to give them just a glimpse, a taste, an encounter with that truth, that hope, then their lives can be changed. And the more that lives are changed, the more that a community is changed. A future is changed. The world is changed. Too often Christians think that when Jesus returns, Jesus snaps his fingers and all of a sudden everything is different. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are to be building. You'll notice that the psalm that I read to you talked about, you know, even the mighty mountain Bashan, many high peaks, is jealous of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that is not even a mountain, it is a mount. It is slightly built up, and upon it sits the house of God. And those mighty mountains look with great jealousy at that little temple mount. Because it is what happens in Jerusalem that doesn't happen on the peaks of Bashan. The world, with so much power and privilege and people in those positions, will look with jealousy at what you are able to give that they cannot. 
And some of the greatest leaders in the scriptures, in human history, in American history, are those that were able to give the incredible gift of hope. May you be that vessel for someone else, changing how they think and feel, changing what they believe about who they are, and ultimately doing your part to build the kingdom here. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week. 